Greetings, I'm Elizabeth Emery, and this is episode 21 of Hear Her Sports, the podcast about exceptional female athletes and women in sports. In this episode, Nicole Thompson tells me about her ACL surgery and rehab. To start off, though, I was fortunate enough to talk to Dr. Sabrina Strickland, an orthopedic sports surgeon at Hospital for Special Surgery, to find out more about women in ACLs. Nicole and I thought it would be great to have a little bit of science background to our conversation, so thank you to Dr. Strickland for her expertise. Okay, so basically, women have a higher risk of ACL injury than men, and it varies depending on sports. And so, for example, for skiing, it's about two to one. Women are twice as likely to tear their ACL skiing as men. And then in sports that are higher risk that involve more cutting, such as soccer or basketball, the rates go up to six to eight times the rate. And so there's been a ton of research over the past 20 to 30 years looking at why, especially because we want to find things that are modifiable. We want to be able to tell young girls what they could do differently so that they don't tear their ACLs. So some of the things we've discovered are not modifiable, meaning women tend to have slightly smaller ligaments. So they're just a little bit less strong. The space for the ACL in the middle of the knee is a little bit smaller, and people with with a smaller notch or a smaller space are a little bit more likely to tear their ACLs. The way women are made, our hips are a little bit wider and our knees are a little bit more knock-kneed, put us at a slightly higher risk biomechanically than men. And then hormones have been really controversial because some studies have shown that in certain times during the menstrual cycle, women are a little bit more likely to tear their ACLs and other studies have shown that there really isn't a hormonal influence what would the hormones be doing? Well, for example, you know, for, when we're pregnant, we have hormones that relax our body and relax our ligaments and make us a little bit more stretchy so that that we can have a baby. And so some of those same types of hormones we naturally have in our body and they do, the levels go up and down depending on the menstrual cycle. And so, for example, certain hormones may make us a little bit more likely to stretch a little. And if we stretch a little bit too much, then there could be too much force on the ligament and the ligament can tear. So they looked at whether or not athletes should be on birth control pills because that makes it a more steady state of hormones. And there really isn't isn't any consensus. And certainly we want something that's a little bit more obvious or a little bit easier to modify. And what, what really that's come down to is that when you watch a video of a girl or a woman landing from a jump, for example, like jumping up to shoot a basketball, our form or the way girls and women naturally do it is a little riskier than boys. And so that's something that can be taught. So there has been a lot of programs, both with soccer, mostly with soccer, to try to teach athletes how to move a little bit differently and to train certain muscles to potentially react a little bit quicker to reduce injury rates. And there's some pretty decent data that the injury rates can be reduced, but you have to stay on that program. And most coaches and most athletes don't do that as part of, as a part of their regular training. So you said that this is the way, there's a difference in the way that men and women or girls and boys naturally land. So is that like naturally from like the super young age, so it really is natural, or is it a chance that there's something in the way that girls and boys learn how to land? Now, well, that's a good question, but I think it's basically in our sort of neuromotor response, like the muscle that fires first in certain situations in a boy would be their hamstrings, which sort of, it, it 
preserves or takes some of the stress off the ACL. In girls, it's their quad, so and which puts, if anything, a little more stress on the ACL. So it's girls land more in a more stiff-legged or rigid position. And if you watch boys, they tend to land more like a spring, which naturally absorbs some of that force or some of that shock. And it's not because girls, when they're three, are taught to do things differently. It's just a matter of sort of how we were, how evolution evolved. And I don't know what would, why that would make sense, but, you know, the hormones make sense. The, the jumping doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's definitely a fact. That's really curious. So what are the, what are the things that you can modify to teach people to fire their hamstrings first? Well, you can, you can practice jumping and landing in the right way. And that can sort of train your body to do it more naturally. You can work more on your core and glute strength so that when you're going after a, a ball and you're, you're cutting side to side, that your glutes are firing more and because they're stronger and that reduces sort of the knock knee position of the knee and takes some of the stress off the ACL. So there's a number of different programs that coaches can look at and players can look at and incorporate pretty simple stuff into their exercise regimen to reduce that risk. And you said that this is something that you have to do part of your regular regimen. You can't sort of learn it and then say, okay, I've learned exactly. it. Okay. No, exactly. They've done it with, for example, there was a Norwegian hand, like the national handball teams did, you know, did this intervention, demonstrated that the risks were lower. And then the next year they figured everyone had learned it. They stopped and the risks went, you know, the rates went right back up. Wow. That's interesting. So for your, the, your patients, what are you suggesting? I mean, let's all, let's figure that they've all torn their ACL already. So what are you suggesting in rehab to prevent them from doing it again? So first of all, if I see a patient under 25, you know, I tell them the statistics. So their chance of re-tearing their ACL based on large studies is 25%, which is really high. That is high. And it's not... It's not that they're going to, it's not 25% in that knee. It's basically 12.5% in the knee that they just had reconstructed, and it's 12.5% in the contralateral of their other knee. And so, you know, basically what I tell them is they really shouldn't get back to sports until they're 100% strong, number one. And number two, we want to make sure that the good leg is or has been rehabbed just as well. And at least where I work at the hospital for special surgery, we have a program we call it quality movement assessment where they come in and they're videotaped and really analyzed moving to make sure that they're strong enough and moving in the right ways. And if it's a two part program, so you come in once and basically you fail. I mean, I've never had anybody pass on the first time. So you fail. And then the, you're, to, you're told all these things you really have to work on. You go back to physical therapy, or you go back to the gym, and then you come back a couple months later and hopefully you pass. And they hate that I call it pass and fail, but you know, essentially that's what happens because you're really trying to optimize how your strength program is and how you're moving to reduce the re-injury risk. And yeah. you're testing strength of, I assume, quads and hamstrings and glutes and hips and stuff? Yeah, but it's not just like, you know, you can do something called isokinetic muscle testing, which looks at essentially the strength of the muscle. This is a lot more looking at how you're landing from a jump, how you're stepping down from an eight-inch step. I mean, things that actually re relate directly to what you're going to do in sports. Right, right. So let's say somebody's listening to this and wants to go through this program, what can they do? So 
for example, if you have a 13-year-old girl playing soccer who obviously is a pretty high risk of tearing your ACL, you could go to a place like my hospital, the Performance Center, and they can actually do this. You don't have to be injured to do this program. And they can look at how you're moving and they can suggest ways to get stronger. But also there's there's plenty of resources on the web. FIFA, the Soccer Association, FIFA, they have a program online where it basically shows exercises they recommend every soccer player do. Because even, I mean, I take care of plenty of men who tear their ACLs. And so everybody would benefit from doing the appropriate type of strengthening exercises. Um, there's a number of other programs. Uh, there's one out of Santa Monica Sports Medicine and where they have a pretty good online uh, presence, as well as um, Tim Hewitt, who is a uh, physical therapist in Ohio, who's really done a lot of research on ACL prevention. And so you know, these particular institutions that I mentioned have just done a better job of putting things on the internet. Like, you know, we have a great institution. We just don't have a huge at-home web program for patients to follow. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That's great. I really appreciate <laughs> you talking to us. Absolutely. Anytime. So that was the science behind women and ACLs. Now we're going to meet Nicole Thompson. She is an award-winning human resources consultant for a whole Del Hayes USA, which operates over 800 supermarkets in the United States. She is the founder of North Shore Women's Networking Group and is active at the local community charter school, where she serves as the chair of the governance committee. In her sporting life, she swam for Skidmore College, has completed three marathons, including the Boston Marathon, several triathlons, and in the past four years has returned to tennis, a sport she loved as a kid. Nicole is one of the most positive people I know, a great leader, and an inspiration to everybody who is around her. She starts off our conversation by describing the gory details of what happened. So I tore, ruptured, tore, I'm not sure the right word, uh, my ACL uh, in February. And it was on the tennis court. I was doing nothing fantastic, just stepped. And um, it felt like, I don't know, it buckled. Mechanically, it buckled and I went down. But it felt like getting shot in the knee. I mean, I was on the ground. It was complete yard sale. Racking went flying. <laughs> Mortifying. <laughs> but aside from the embarrassment of it, clearly something had gone very wrong very quickly. And it was excruciating, excruciating bone pain. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, I heard it. First off, I heard it, it was very loud. But the what I came to learn later by looking at the x-rays where that was there were significant bone bruise on the two bones so when the acl blew the bones sort of came crashing together and the meniscus flipped over and there was all sorts of things happening but i think that was the pain that that was excruciating more so than the tendon bursting but who could tell sure. <laughs> in a moment like that <laughs> right do you think about ways that you could have changed that day i think yes Definitely. I think coming out of that, looking back, there are systemic things that I could do as a 40 plus year old woman that really help in life. I think all women, as I've heard over 40, could be doing strength training, stretching exercises, and certainly doing more cardio type work, etc. And I think I really was having fun that week. <laughs> there was everything fun <laughs> about that week, from skiing to do all these amazing things. But I'm not sure I has have been paying as close attention as I could have been to some of those other elements in life from a strength perspective, stretching and all those things. 
I was not stretching as well as I should have been. I was clearly leading up to that week playing like a 12 year old. I was, it was vacation week. So I was skiing in, in great ski conditions here in New England that week. I was playing two hours of tennis in a round robin, which was not my normal thing that I would do back to back days. And it just happened to be that last step on the last day at the, at the end of the second hour playing with a pro and it just, it happened. So probably just a, waiting to happen it probably was coming and I didn't realize it but that was that was sort of how I got there and you know at the end of the day sometimes there's just terrible luck um (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know you hear about people um I don't know if it was Roger Federer's ACL it was certainly his knee that he was putting his two-year-old into the tub and and he he blew something I'm not sure if it was his ACL but uh, or you hear about people just sort of walking around in their kitchen, which is sort of horrifying turn, and then it's that pivot motion, and then it goes. I also have heard from coaches since, or people just in the community that talk about um, ACL injuries. A friend of mine's a soccer coach, uh, a principal at a school and a soccer coach, and he sees he has seen young girls in high school tear ACLs, and in some cases more than once, which is a horrifying hmm. thing for me to think about. And so I do wonder, you know, you, I've been talking about all the important things about being a woman over 40 and stretching and strength, et cetera. But you all, I do wonder about that component of being female and, and how we're built and certainly high risk sports that have the pivot involved, skiing, soccer, tennis, certainly all those fall within that category. Uh, but I do wonder about that. You know, certainly I think just some of those sports lend to a little bit more high risk as well than the everyday injuries that we were talking about earlier where somebody's just walking in their kitchen and pivoting. That seems like a rare occurrence, but (laughs) it can happen. So tell me a little bit about your rehab. So this happened, you said, in February? So it happened in February. Uh, I had a rehab that started, well, I uh, my uh, happened in February. My surgery was scheduled for April, April April-ish, before I get the date. And prior to going into it, um, the rehab was, six phases, but prior going into it, I sort of had the T minus phase, which is what I called it, which was uh, trying to gain some quad strength prior to going into surgery and trying to do some strength training and um, stretching and things like that to try to prepare uh, for that April date. So you were mobile at that point? So I was relatively mobile. I think I was on crutches for maybe 10 days. And once I got off the crutches, I have to tell you, between February and April, I felt pretty good going into April prior to surgery, with the exception of one element. My meniscus had flipped over, so it was it was in the wrong spot, which caused me to not be able to have full um, extension of my knee. So that mechanically was causing issues. But had that not been there, I actually don't think I would have felt too terrible. In fact, some people don't have ACL surgery, and I can sort of see the path that they take as they recover. I did not feel unstable and the feedback actually coming back through the PTs that saw me was no things feel okay. I think you're all right. Which in the back of my head, I knew (laughs) based on the sound and everything, I really knew intuitively, but I wanted to believe them and said, Oh, maybe I haven't really done this. Maybe it's still connected. And maybe this is not a complete rupture. Had you gotten MRIs? So MRIs came later. It takes a bit of a time to get through that process. Your swelling is a degree where they want to wait maybe two, three weeks until you get your MRI and the results of getting your MRI back could take, you know, seven to 10 days. So it's really a bit of an excruciating wait through this process. And then you go in and you see the 
the film and it's not, there was, it was very clear <laughs> <laughs> what had happened. So that was a disappointment, but certainly good to have the information. I have to tell you, you know, once you gain the information, you can sort of put your mind around it, put a plan around it and say, all right, what are we dealing with? After three or four weeks of unknown, you just, you really want to know what's going on sure. and how can I move forward? So the phase is to, to answer your question, the, the rehabilitation guidelines for uh, that I received for recovery were six phases, which span from week zero, which is what point of surgery to 24 plus weeks, which is what I'm entering this week, which is really exciting. It really becomes, for me, it was like a full-time job and I, and I have a job, but really sort of this element of planning for this event for me was extensive because I had so many things per phase that I was trying to figure out to make sure that I got through, whether it was that first week, which is very geared towards getting on the constant movement machine. I was doing that 10 hours a day for 10 days straight. What's the constant movement machine? Yeah, this constant movement machine and I became very close. It, um, it, it was in the bed with me for a good amount of nights. It, a constant movement machine is a, a device. You put your leg on it and it ever so slowly moves your leg to a flexed position and you can change the, the flex on the machine. So you could start off, for example, at 15 degrees, right? That you'd have your leg flexed at that degree, and then you would move it up each day. And I think the intent and the purpose of the machine is to make sure that everything continues to, to move, uh, that your knee is moving, that you're not gaining blood clots post-surgery, but it also serves a purpose of trying to gain some range of motion back, which is really the first or the primary goal of that first phase. So 10 hours a day for 10 days. That's um, a lot of time. Is a lot of time. <laughs> It is a lot of time. That's like all my waking yep. hours. <laughs> it is, which is how it ended up in bed with me some nights. And I have to tell you, it made me feel better. If I wasn't moving, it was it would become quite stiff and painful hmm. uh, and swollen. But what I ended up doing is uh, I have the flexibility because I, I work as a consultant to, I literally set up shop in my office and there would be times where I would just do conference calls for four or five hours and I would be on the constant movement machine and it was just happening as I was living and working. <laughs> but I have also heard, I think that that from a protocol perspective, I, I think I have a, happened to have a conservative protocol, aggressive and conservative in, in some senses. But I think it might be typical for some people going through that experience to get prescribed two to four hours a day. Oh, uh, or in some cases, I had a peer that went through this process with me at the same time, and she did not have it prescribed at all. That was not on her protocol. So I think it's definitely, um, it was a selective choice for this, this physician. But it sounded like it really helped you, or you think you helped it helped you. I think it really helped me from a comfort standpoint, from a swelling standpoint, from a recovery standpoint, sort of in that first 30-day mark. I think it really helped me quite a bit. Okay, so that's the first week. <laughs> that was the first week. <laughs> I have to tell you, I consider myself a self-proclaimed tough person. That first week was was tough, tough if not tougher than me. It was um, it was challenging. Just from a pain perspective, was greater than I thought. Huh. From a um, from a somebody that is independent and likes to help myself, it was difficult to ask for help. That, that was an intuitive uh, at three in the morning when I just, you know, sort of the pain medication wears off or the ice wears off and you really need quickly. Um, you know, that was difficult for me to feel a little bit isolated in that regard that I couldn't 
in fact, just help myself in, in that way. So I would say, and emotional, I'd say that first week was very emotional. And come Sunday, which was day five, uh, I had my first, I guess an only, I would say meltdown where I just, <clears throat> I just started getting emotional about the fact that I couldn't help myself, right? I couldn't even uh, get up to get ice per se. It would be like a 30 minute journey to the, to the freezer. And I started getting emotional. I started crying and I couldn't stop for like three hours, which was, which was of concern as well. <laughs> um, I'm not really typically a crier, but I just couldn't stop. And I thought, you know, in hindsight, I reached out to a friend who had gone through this experience and she said, I did the same thing. And she said, it's a combination I'm sure of emotion, but it's also a combination of sometimes on day five, all of those drugs leaving your system. It's a combination of, of a whole lot of things that are sort of happening maybe at one complete concentrated moment, but it was a pretty, um, I finally just didn't try to stop. I was like, all right, here we go. This is happening. Let's <laughs> let it out. <laughs> um, Did you also have a sense like this is going to go on forever and ever? I mean, you, I find that I tend to lose perspective and forget that, you know, things move on, they heal, they end. I definitely had, I think that was part of the struggle because I was day five and I thought, this is five days. And, and people had warned me, don't measure it in days, measure it in weeks, because each day it's going to be hard to see progress. But, but week by week, you'll see some incremental progress. So I had a low moment. And then, I don't know why, I started taking on the pain of others for some reason. I had this moment that I thought, and I'm here in, in Boston, and I was thinking about the Boston Marathon and the bombing and people that were impacted by that event. And people that had come out injured or would not be able to come to a place where they could rehab and come back to the place that they had started. And I don't know why I went there, but I probably spent a good hour of that three thinking about that event and thinking about people going through that journey. And I internalized it that way as well for some reason that I thought, man, I have an end goal here. I will recover if I work hard and I will come out the same, if not stronger. But I really, I don't know why, but it really impacted me for almost a third of that three hours that, that I struggled with that. And I really had a lot of compassion and really, I can't imagine going through an experience and not knowing what the end game would be. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was tough. And have you kept that, those thoughts and feelings? I have, I think about them a lot. I think about them a lot and I stop more now. I'm so much more aware. For example, on the 4th of July, I was walking around town and this is, you know, I was certainly walking without crutches and a brace and I was moving around a little bit, but still it was one of those days. Actually, it was the week that I called myself Forrest Gump because I started walking and I didn't want to stop. It was one of those weeks that I finally had the ability to to move. And I just, once I got started, I didn't want to stop because it was, it just felt so great. Emotionally, it felt great to move forward. And I ran into this woman, we were walking on the sidewalk and I had seen her coming and she had her arm in a sling and she had a cane and she wasn't moving very well. And I stopped her and I started engaging her in conversation and, and come to find out she had just suffered from a stroke. She was probably mid fifties, young person. And we just started talking. We started talking about the day. We started talking about the walk that we were on. And it was really one of these beautiful moments that I was so thankful that we stopped and found each other. And it's, it's something that I think about now as I go through life about people that are physically injured, but people that are just sort of working through a hard day and how we move ourselves forward. And I asked her, I said, what are your goals? 
tell me what you're looking forward to. And she said, well, I'm a bagpiper. And so my goal is to bagpipe again. And clearly with my left arm in the sling, you know, I need that to do that. And so we publicly sort of talked out loud about what each other's goals were. And I thought, gosh, what a great goal she's got to bagpipe. I've since seen her. I've driven past her uh, and given a big honk and a wave in town. And I can't wait to see her again and stop and see how she's progressing. But that's nice. So are we, have we progressed to week two yet? <laughs> oh my gosh, right? That was the theme of week one. <laughs> have we progressed to week two? <laughs> oh, <clears throat> I'll say that phase one, which is two weeks, was definitely about recovering. I'd say uh, phase two, which is four weeks, which, which was great milestones coming back to make me feel like I was living again and simple things being able to get out of the house, to be able to move, to be able to drive after four weeks was a big privilege to gain back. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Um, it was huge. Talk about independence. Right. Um, working definitely helped me just mentally um, work on projects and move forward in a different way other than physically. Uh, and then it continued working with a PT. I had a great PT that was working with me two and three times a week in town and we were working on progressing to full range of motion the bike my first three or four times on the bike was sitting on the bike rocking back and forth not getting around so being able to move that pedal all the way around you know it's so funny to have these small goals and look at it now and say oh my gosh that was such a good day and I had cheerleaders you know I'd go to the gym and I'd have people that I would say were my peer group because they had been injured in some cases they could have been you know, a much older gentleman that had gone through hip replacement or knee replacement, but they would come by and cheer me on because they would see me and they'd say, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. Keep working at it. And, you know, you start to run in these cycles with other people and you do start to share goals with each other. And it does become this nice common language that you can celebrate with each other. So, you know, getting all the way around rotation on a bike, it seems like a minimal goal. <laughs> it was everything to me. When, when I did that, that was the highlight of phase two. I have to, I, Probably. Other than driving, that was probably the highlight of phase two. <laughs> yeah, it certainly was the first time I've been broken physically, per se, that I had that I went through an experience like that, that I had to wait that long to become physical again right. in a way that I, yeah. And then, you know, once once I sort of got through that phase one and phase two and I went into the summer, you know, which is six, 12 weeks out, things start to become so much more manageable because there's, you know, you're moving forward, you're, you're moving around, you're gaining all these things. And I tried to stay really focused on what the work that I needed to do because it was easier to sort of then take advantage of the fact that, gosh, I'm moving around, I'm doing all these great things. I really tried to stay focused on, you know, the exercising, doing them faithfully, icing, doing all the things that take a lot of time and um, gaining some of that balance back to your point was really important. I remember I had a great appointment with my surgeon, which was three months in and everything I'd, uh, I my range of motion scores were great. My flexibility, all the things that they measure for uh, the ACL was strong. It was, I remember ha being really, really happy with that appointment and being so proud and happy. And, uh, and he said, congratulations, you're, you're a quarter of the way through. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, oh my God. <laughs> And he wasn't wrong. You know, they do say it takes a year, but um, that mm. in itself is like, I feel like the 80% of the work you do is in that first quarter sure. and the 20% is then extended over the last three quarters. But um, that was a perfect illustration of being like, all right, like, <laughs> you're doing great. 
You've got some more time. <laughs> wow. So how much time were you spending during, you know, like the first few phases uh, on your rehab and recovery and everything that was associated with it? Yeah, I actually did the math on this because I was planning. So the first week, the first two weeks, it was 38 hours, it was 36 to 38 hours. And that includes ice and stretching. And that might have included the 10 hours of CPM. I'll ha- I have to remember if it did or not, but it was a full time endeavor. And in fairness, I think it helped me. I also think the protocol that I was on, again, was pretty extensive. I, my surgeon, I had a great surgeon at a Mass General, uh, Dr. Peter Asnes, and he's a surgeon for a lot of the sports teams in town, the Red Sox and uh, the Patriots and the Bruins. And I think some of the protocol was common to some of the protocol of some of those professional athletes that were getting back at it, which I was super thrilled to have, right? So I thought, listen, if this is their full-time job, it's my full-time job too. And I, and I can do this, but it was for that first week, it was maybe 36, 38 hours. And then going into phase two, it started to drop down, but still significant 20, 24 hours at the end of the day. Right. Per week, per week. That's a lot. And a lot. we didn't talk about how tired you were and how much you were resting. I'm sure that that was part of it as well. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting from as I started to be able to stand up without crutches and move forward, I definitely had some endurance issues. You know, I would get tired standing. Uh, I try to go out to the sports field and stand for 30 minutes and then I progressed to 40 minutes. But that was definitely something I had to work at and build my endurance and strength back up just to stand on two feet. And you are in your last week? right now? So I'm in my last phase, phase six. So I'm entering the six month mark, which is great news. And the six month mark allows me to do all sorts of great things, which make me feel strong and make me feel happy, which include, you know, speed and agility drills, sports training, you know, technically on paper, they say that you can get back to tennis, which is a very pivot oriented sport with a brace which I've cautiously, I've stepped onto the court to hit, but not done much more than that. You know, I, I put it in my mind that I will not return to tennis until January 2018. But it's exciting because you can start to do, um, really get back to full range of motion in all the activities with a sports brace that you used to do, but in a way that's very thoughtful and, um, you know, you have to be a little bit careful about it. I certainly won't be skiing this season. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so now it's just, Time, actually. Time and enjoying sort of building back up and enjoying the comeback, if you will, which is fun. Yeah. What are you going to do for the comeback? And how are you going to, are you worried about tearing it again? Are you? That's a great question. I'm horrified at the thought of tearing it again. I don't know if I could have the strength to go through it again, which is ridiculous because I would. I would and it's been successful, but it's a horrifying thought to me. But it's something that I will think about. I will think about as I step back out on to the court or do other things. I continue to have that repeat of the violence of the moment. You know, the, it was so fast, so dramatic, so violent, so jarring that I, I have that play in my head sometimes, loops in my head. I think I have to sort of work through that with a little bit of time. But yeah, I think, I think I'll always think about it. Mm-hmm. Will your surgeon and the PTs, do they, I don't know, prepare you for not having it happen again? And you know, some of the things that we talked about before, you know, sort of doing more stretching and balancing your hamstrings and with your quads and, I don't know, other exercises that you're supposed to be doing sort of throughout your life now. 
Yeah, I'd say the protocol and the focus has been getting me back to where I am now, to this final stage. I think from here on, I need to, um, I'm, I'm going to be self-policing that myself. I think intuitively, strengthening your quads, strengthening your hamstrings, and strength training in general is a must. And that's really where they've left it. And now it's for me to, to go off and continue it and pull it into Pull it into everyday routine. Had you been strength training before? I had not, no. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I'm not good at it. I am, it really bores me to death. <laughs> I, I I love strength training because, you know, like tell week, me. week one, you know, you pick up one pound and it's heavy and, you know, like week 10, you're picking up 50 and it's easy. I just, you know, like yeah. being able to see those really concrete results is very gratifying. Yeah, I um, I think there's so many things that are good for me about strength training, which is why I need to do it from a, not just a strength preventative for injury, but, you know, just as a, a non-patient person, I think that's one of the elements that really I struggle with. And I don't know why that's different. I don't know why an hour of strength training is different than going out and running for an hour. I think it's the, you know, it's the same. So it, it will be part of my life. It, it is now and it's got to be built in. Right. I read you should strength train the same percentage as your age. So if you're 40, you should be strength training 40% of the time of your athletic Are you, activities. That's, that's, that's 40. Yeah, I'm 44. That, that's, that's a good percent. That's a good percent of my time, Elizabeth. I know. I think I need to make some adjustments. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good statistic to know. Yeah. Even if you just sort of have it in mind and don't you know, like have it as a long distance goal. Right. right, right. Have you changed or have you thought about, you know, who you are and who you are going forward having had this injury? You know, like has, has, has this changed your sense of self? That's such a great question. I think all the things that I took into the injury and the recovery plan were very much attributes of my sense of self, right? Strategy, planning, being positive, moving forward, grit, all of those things. I would say it is an extremely humbling experience to go through and feel like you've lost independence or some of those things that I felt along the way in the journey certainly were humbling. And I definitely learned a lot about my capability as an individual and how much independence means to me and strength and, and my physical self. And so I think coming out of it, I would say that it has changed me in, in regard to just my awareness and my gratitude. Uh, I try to, I try to be so thankful every day when I wake up and say, you know, okay, you've got this day ahead of you. What are you going to do with it? You know, how are you going to spend this day ahead of you? And I would definitely say I ask that question almost every day since. And I think I ask it a lot more than I used to. I, th I feel like, and this is just my experience, this is an injury I will recover from, but I feel like I definitely had certain times in life where things are going well and they're going strong and things are good and it's easy and it's great. And it's easy to sometimes to forget that things can go really wrong really quickly, much bigger than an ACL tear. And I sort of have broadly attributed that to much bigger things in life in regards to general health of the, my family, myself, and sort of that 10,000 foot view of gratitude of, you know, what's ahead of me, what's ahead of us, 
we're strong and being just so grateful for the day. So it sounds a little bit sappy, but definitely I've gone to a much different emotional place in regards to just health and being very thankful for it. That sounds like a positive result of getting injured. I was really determined. It it happened. I was also really determined to come out with a positive result from being injured. It was almost the only way I could stomach the injury. I have to tell you, I thought, all right, how, so I have to go through this. It, there are so many challenges, but what's at the end? What, what can I turn out of this? If I'm going to go through this experience, which physically slows me down, uh, mentally slows me down, what am I going to be able to come out the other side with it? that I would not have been able to come out with had I not had the injury. And emotionally, that really helped me. It helped me to brand it as a comeback. It helped me to brand it as a challenge. And it helped me to brand it as an opportunity. That was the only way I could, that was the only way I could get through, honestly. So it was more self-preservation. But yes, I did feel like that. I loved how you you called it Tour of ACL. I think that just... <laughs> There's so much in that name that is great. Oh, the tour to ACL. Uh, but I was looking for a name to help myself brand it like a challenge or a race because the amount of planning I was doing to it felt like the same amount of planning or structure that I would put towards another challenge, whether it be a marathon or something that required several weeks and months of training for. And I wanted it to be fun and I wanted it to be cheeky and make me smile and have something that I could say, hey, this is where I am in my journey and people could give a name to it. And I liked it. It made me smile. So it served the purpose and it still does. Have, have your family and your friends been affected by your, your injury and how you've approached it? My immediate family, for sure. My husband specifically. <laughs> so when I branded this tour to ACL, I immediately needed a t-shirt uh, to commemorate the event. And <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do a challenge like this, you've got to have the t-shirt. You've got to like have a the flag. <laughs> so I had a Tour de ACL t-shirt with my name put on the back of it because you also have to identify yourself as a member of the challenge. And um, I bought one for him, too. I wear mine a lot. I wear it to the gym. I wear it out. It gives me strength. Uh, his has not left the drawer because I think he would never. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it has the same positive feelings for him. I think the challenge of being a spouse or an immediate family member is great when somebody is down. So I think from an impact standpoint, it definitely impacted them in regards to routine. You know, we're all equal members of the family, but when the mom goes down, you know, sometimes we tend to be the, the production worker in the line, uh, things shift. And I will say for the better, maybe it was a great launching off opportunity in regards to helping uh, kids understand age appropriate chores and how to take care of themselves and how to, Nice. Um, be self-sufficient. So I think that byproduct was good. If you asked them, I think they didn't think that that was such a great outcome. No, that sounds really great. But you know, I, your husband, I mean, I just imagine him getting up at 3am and running to the icebox. Yeah, that was a tough night. I have to tell you for so many reasons, and this is more about communication between spouses. You know, this actually came down to the very core of being up at three in the morning, not communicating well, and me sending him down to the icebox. I think he went up and downstairs three times that night because <laughs> I was not clear enough to tell him exactly what I needed, which was go to the freezer, get as much ice as you can in a bag, 
run upstairs and just sit it right on top of my knee because I'm in so much pain. So that would have been a very clear way to say, this is what I need. I was not that clear, which resulted in um, three trips uh, downstairs to get the ice machine because I had a contraption that was like actually an ice sleeve, which was super helpful, except in three in this instance, it was not helpful. So he he lugged that upstairs and then I sent him back down and he got, (laughs) you know, like a kid's door, the Explorer ice, something that was going to be helpful, which is not what I needed. So I sent him back down for the third time. (laughs) So... (laughs) So when I talk about that moment at 3 a.m., it actually sort of is a much larger discussion about, you know, when you're in crisis and you need help, how do you ask very clearly and very specifically about what you need? And um, that's probably an example of what I could have done better, which resulted in a a three trip down to the the freezer situation. That's a good lesson, though, early on. It was a a good lesson early on. And, you know, it's it's funny because we... um, we talked, I think, four or five weeks after the fact. We talked about how hard that 30 days was. And uh, we talked about that 3 a.m. moment. And we t- I had a moment. I said, wow, things sometimes were hard. They weren't great. I said, should we talk about that? And he said, no. No, we should not. Like, we've been together a very long time. We have a really great marriage. And we're great friends. I think sometimes things are hard. And should you go back and visit them? No, that was just a hard night. And I think we look we look ahead. <laughs> It was a funny response. So what are your goals now? So I have so many fun goals ahead of me. This is so exciting. I uh, have a peer that I've that tore her ACL a couple days before me. So we have been on this journey together. And she and I have created a common goal, which is to run a uh, 5K road race around Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving, sort of that first week in December. Coming up. Uh, yeah, it's coming up. I That's great. Just started running mid mid uh, late July, and so it's coming up, and I'm training for that, which is really exciting and really fun. And my second goal is to get back on the tennis court. That's a fully loaded goal. That's emotional. That's um, got some fear attached to it. It's not just running straight forward for endurance, but it's doing a whole lot of other things and, and truly testing the knee. So, two really fun fun goals ahead to work towards. Will you have a hard time, you know, starting slowly, you know, like you presumably you're not going to start at the same pace you start you were running when when it happened? Will that be hard? Yeah, it. Yes. For from a running perspective, again, I'm just trying to start where I am. That's been my motto. Start where you are. And when my training partner and I, Amy, started where we where we were that day, we started walking around the track with our braces on and it, it took us 28 minutes to go one mile, which was fast for us. We were really, <laughs> we were hauling <laughs> and we were really fast. It was 28 minutes and we kept at it and we kept at it and we got down to 24 and we got down to 18 and 17 and we started picking up the pace a little bit and I'm now down to I think a 1330 mile just a blistering pace (laughs) but for me too it's a little bit about endurance and to be able to being able to go a mile a mile and a half which is sort of where I am now without stopping without integrating it with walking so yes it's slower it's I can't look back I've never been a fast fast person I've never been winning races by any means I've never been considered fast but what fuels me is being able to do it and be able to improve on it and be able to meet a goal and meet last week's time that really is helping me move forward in a fun way making it's fun to celebrate those milestones 
there certainly have been a lot of suggestions during this whole conversation, but do you have any other suggestions you'd like to add for people going through this rehab or who are about to go through it? You know, everybody, I think, processes differently. Everything goes through different experiences. But I would just say allow yourself some time. There's certainly patience involved. Get a community of people around you that can help you through the journey. Don't be afraid to ask for help and really clearly to avoid a a, a 3 a.m. debacle. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say, for me, the power of a comeback really helped me through this journey. I think the power of taking the ownership on of the recovery, doing everything that was prescribed, but just emotionally taking it internally, branding it and saying, okay, how am I going to treat this experience so that I can come out the other end stronger? How, what's going to get me through dark times. And um, those elements really, really helped me in a way that made it almost um, exciting, right? Like, Oh my gosh, I, I made it through this challenge. I made it through the tour to ACL. You know, it, it's it's funny because I talked about those T-shirts that I made up commemorating the challenge. It was a very beautiful ski season here in New England, but there seemed to be a lot of torn ACLs in town as I started to go through the gym and see people. And because I had a minimum allotment of these T-shirts, I had to buy six T-shirts in order to get the customization. So I started, when I saw this other woman at the gym that tore her ACL, I started giving these T-shirts out and I started to hand them out. I don't know if they had such an appreciation for receiving this T-shirt as as I did about giving it, but, um, you know, I feel like if you can find a community of people that are going through the same experience that you're going through, there's a lot of strength in that. Yeah, I bet it was really great having your companion who tore tore ACL almost on the same day. I mean, it's yes. it's unfortunate, but what a great companion to have. It was she was a stranger prior to the event, and uh, she's now a dear friend and training partner. It definitely helped give me strength. Well, we're going to wrap things up. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Thank you. Thanks for asking the question. You know, I am not a professional athlete. Clearly, I am not somebody that their professional life is tied to athletics or performance on a field or trying to gain through a sponsorship or anything. And I just, you know, I think the commonality of having an injury to the body is something that sort of transcends maybe some of those spaces. And I just appreciate you asking the question. You know, I don't know if my journey is very unique to others that are going through that, but certainly I think that if you know, in honor of your host, which is your body, if you can do things to make it strong and do things to preserve it and do things to help prevent injury that impact, whether it's your professional life, your personal life, or your spirit, those are things just every day that I know that I will focus on coming out of this experience. And um, just thank you. Thanks for asking, asking the question. Oh, you're very welcome. I really appreciate you agreeing to be on the podcast. I, I It's It was really great to talk to you, and I love your optimistic attitude about this and about everything. Oh, thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I know it's totally a pain, but please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really does help the podcast to reach more people and to get the word out about female athletes and women in sports. Just a reminder, Allie's Bar is still available for listeners at 50% off with free shipping using the promo code HERSPORTS. That means a box of 12 are only $14. And they taste great and aren't loaded with sugar. There's been a lot of chat about meal planning. I'm totally terrible at that and often find myself happily saved by an Allie's Bar. 
Also, check out the new layout of the Hear Her Sports website at hearhersports.com. It has a beautiful landing page featuring a design by Agnes Studio. It's easier to find the podcast you want and to listen directly from the site. Sign up for our newsletter and follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Hear Her Sports. See you in two weeks. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.